Hello, and welcome to Misinformation, the trivia podcast for anyone who loves cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at Pub Quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hey, Julia. Hi, Lauren. Hi. I was, I wanted you to know that I was inspired by last uh, episode's like topic. Yeah. And Steve and I sat on the couch and we watched Point Break starring one Patrick Swayze and neither one of us we realized had seen that movie uh-huh. um and uh one it was great uh two um man Patrick Swayze just acts circles around Keanu Reeves <laughs> I mean this was like peak beautiful 1991 Keanu Reeves with right like that smooth smooth skin and that beautiful those beautiful cheekbones and I at one point the love interest looks at <laughs> looks at Keanu Reeves and she goes what's going on I know that look and I looked at Steve like what look, look. <laughs> that's the same that's his, that's his same, face that's just his wooden face but uh Patrick Swayze was wonderful with this feathery blonde hair and his beautiful eyes and just like it was a, it's a great movie did I Steve like it he did he it's did a heist like it. it is well kind of yeah he likes a heist movie okay as long as he knows, you know, as long as he knows it's not a comedy, too, or a satire about society, or if it's just like a straightforward action movie, he's on board. All right. That's he just great. needs to be warned ahead of time. Oh, the other thing he did is that he, he's he been like slowly working his way through our back catalog. And he was like, I got through the Premier League episode today. I was like, yeah, what's going on? He was like, someone <laughs> said on their podcast... That someone's husband wouldn't make a good football player. <laughs> I have to I have to point out that engineer Josh edited out about six minutes of us laughing, just <laughs> just straight laughing I after I said, I gave that example. He goes, You laughed very hard and very loud. And I would argue you laughed the hardest and loudest about that, more about that than anything else in that episode. <laughs> You don't know me. I was like, no, I do. That's why I laugh so hard. Poor Steve. He's very you, Steve. smart. He is. He's so smart. He's oh my very god. Smart. I'm uh, not just saying that. He really speaking is. of smart um, people. Uh, again, yes. Show some love for our friend and yours, Neil Fisher, from last week's episode. Oh, such a great, such a great episode. Did such a great job. Funny, interesting informative it was great be sure to it, um be sure to order that book yes we'll, again we'll drop that links book. for that again in our uh, social media too yes um please pre-order his book or order his book depending on when you when listen, you to, listen this. to this where and, you are uh, in time right now yes you will not regret it it's very funny it's beautifully designed um we can't speak high, higher of it so please check it out um now i would argue that my <laughs> My episode today is um, a little bit of uh, the opposite of uh, <laughs> Neil's <laughs> Neil's topic. I don't want to say it's the opposite. Um, it's you know it's a little bit more maybe high minded than mm. pop culture stuff. All right. Um, and I figured you know I'd go back to my roots again and talk a little bit about an art thing, an art movement. And I should give a shout out to my good buddy Carrie Schauber, who's my uh, who's my coworker. And is also someone who is a big fan of like the romantics and the Victorians. And 
She gave me some of like the juiciest hot goss that's in this episode. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. So all all of like the fun parts of this episode are 100% Carrie. So today I'm going to be talking to you about the pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood. I know nothing about this. So I get to be your... Fully Guinea blank pig? slate audience member. Oh, good. Wonderful. So the Pre-Raphaelites, um, we will be calling them the PRB sometimes because Pre-Raphaelite is a lot of, you know, extra syllables. And, yeah, syllables. So um, they called themselves the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood. They were later known as just the Pre-Raphaelites. Um, they were a group of English painters, poets, and art critics founded in 1848 by the artists William Holman Hunt, John Everett Millay, Dante Gabriel Rossetti, William Michael Rossetti, his brother, James Collinson, Frederick George Stevens, and Thomas Woolner. So they formed the seven-member brotherhood, okay. that they called. A couple of them are real brothers. Yes, a couple of them were actual real brothers. So the first Rossetti are, brothers. Yeah, yeah, they also the make a great pizza. Hey, oh, hey, hey, the Rossettis. I love them. Um, also, the Rossettis, not good-looking people. But we'll get to that. <laughs> You would think, like, the, the, you know, the history of the Italian people is just chock full of beautiful people with incredible Roman noses. The Rossettis did not get any of that, unfortunately. <laughs> they got, they got all the bad parts. Yeah, just yikes. Um, especially, like, a couple of photos of the whole family together. You're like, yikes, that's <laughs> rough. <laughs> it's a shame. Beautiful artists, though. Okay. So the first three artists that I mentioned, William Holman Hunt, John Everett Millay, and Dante Gabriel Rossetti, mm-hmm. are probably the most famous and the most associated with the pre-Raphaelite movement in general. Okay. So if you remember any of these people, Hunt, Millay, Rossetti, those are the three that are most associated with the pre-Raphaelites. Um, this brotherhood was only really ever a loose association, and their principles were shared by other artists of the time who didn't, con- who weren't like in the brotherhood. Mm-hmm. Um, other artists include Ford Maddox Brown, Arthur Hughes, and Mary Spartali Stillman. Um, and later followers of the principles of the Brotherhood, including Edward Byrne Jones, William Morris, the designer. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, and John William Waterhouse, um, who we'll get to in a second. So we're in England. We are totally in England. Okay. We are fully ensconced in England. So essentially the group sought a return to the, you know, really high detail, intense colors and the complex compositions of what's known as quattrocentro Italian art or quattrocento Italian art. So this is, um, you know, the fourth century Italian art. Mm -hmm. So the brotherhood believed the classical poses and elegant compositions of Raphael in particular had been a corrupting influence on the academic teaching of art. So hence the name pre-Raphaelite. Uh, so they weren't yeah. like honoring him. They were kind no. of like dissing him. Yeah, they were saying he was the turning point where art was no longer good in their eyes. <laughs> yeah. A fellow countryman. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in particular, the group object- objected to the influence of Sir Joshua Reynolds, who was the uh-huh. founder of the English Royal Academy of Arts. Um, they referred to him as Sir Sloshua. <laughs> oh, that's I know, pretty which- good burn. It's a sick burn. So apparently, according to the pre-Raphaelites, sloshy was a slang term meaning anything lax or scamped in the process of painting and hence anything or person of a commonplace or conventional kind. So basically they were saying the academic movement and Sir Joshua in general was just like boring and conventional and not interesting. Is that like chuggy today or are we past chuggy? 
I think we're past chuggy, uh, but I think, yeah, they're chuggy. They were like, Ugh, Sir Sloshua. He was so sloshy, am I right? And like, you know, exchanged notes in class and like, you know, wrote sloshy is dumb on his back and you know, that kind of thing. You know, things that you do in art school. Um, the group also associated the work with John Ruskin, who was an English critic and philosopher and writer, um, and his influences were driven by his religious background. And so Christian themes, especially in the earlier pre-Raphaelite kind of movement, these were abundant. We saw mm -hmm. a lot of, you know, the Virgin Mary. We saw a lot of oh, you know, yeah. history paintings of Christ, like all of this stuff. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so first let's talk about, let's get a quick overview of academic art and why the PRB really hated it so much. Um, I talked a little bit about academic art in a couple of my much earlier art episodes, mm -hmm. but it's, it bears repeating. So academic art is the art and artists influenced by the standards of the French Académie de Beaux-Arts, which was practiced under the movement of neoclassicism, which was basically a return to the classical period of Greek and Roman art. Mm -hmm. I always think so of, uh, of uh, Jean-Louis David as like mm -hmm. neoclassical. He's my like... Yes. Absolutely. Pinpoint for that. Yes. It's a it's a very like highly classical Greek Roman, you know, people are wearing togas. It's very like one to one. Um, so this period, Greek and Roman art was seen as the peak of human artistic talents and subjects. And so all academic art schools in the Western tradition taught this. So in this context, we're talking about it in the 19th century, obviously, but academic art was firmly entrenched by at least the 17th century. Mm -hmm. So academic art had been around for literally hundreds of years. Um, in 1669, the art theoretician André Philibian, who was the secretary of the French Academy, he announced the hierarchy of the genres, which I've mentioned oh. before, mm -hmm. um, but it bears repeating again. He ranked the genres as follows. So the first, the highest of academic is history painting or, you know, paintings of, uh, you know, usually like a biblical scene mm -hmm. or something in in history that have that has happened or something that's like from literature. Um, the second highest is portraiture. The third highest is genre painting or painting of, of just like normal, you know, life scenes, usually peasants, like mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Um, fourth is landscapes. And then way at the bottom is still life. <laughs> um, and of course, as you might imagine, the last two landscapes and still lifes were the only thing that women were allowed to paint um, uh, in terms of the academy. Okay. Yes, yes, okay. yes. Okay, okay. Uh, so this method of ranking paintings according to type was established in the wake of the Italian Renaissance by the great European academies like the Academy of Art in Rome, the Academy of Art in Florence, the French Academy in Paris, and the Royal Academy in London. Um, so this ranking system, which was again based on traditions of Greek and Roman art established during the era of the Florentine Renaissance, was used by the academies as a basis for awarding prizes and scholarships as well as spaces in their exhibitions or salons. Mm -hmm. So it also had a significant impact on the perceived monetary value of the artwork and in the sale room of auction houses. So okay. artists who really didn't comply with these conventions found it really difficult to, to have a career in right. art. Um, so they, for example, they were excluded from the Paris Salon or from any list of you know recommended artists for official posts in teaching or for any official commissions. So if you, there were plenty of artists who did not, who disagreed with like the Academy way of painting but making a living was that much harder because if you painted in the style of the Academy, you had all sorts of doors open for you because that was the way to paint if you wanted to be an artist. Mm -hmm. So essentially, the pre-Raphaelites rankled at the idea of having to paint a particular way in order to make a living, and also that that particular way was inauthentic and frankly, really boring. Right. Um, and so the Brotherhood's early doctrines, which as defined by William Michael Rossetti, were expressed in four declarations. 
So the first was to have genuine ideas to express. All right. Number two, to study nature attentively so as to know how to express them. Okay. Great. Number three, to sympathize with what is direct and serious and heartfelt in previous art to the exclusion of what is conventional and self-parading and learned by rote. Okay. All right. And number four, most indispensable of all, to produce thoroughly good pictures and statues. All right. That's good. I was I was waiting for like number four for you to like pull the rug under me and be like something like and English people are the best people in the whole world. And everybody else has to be painted with devil horns. Like, I, you know, <laughs> exactly. no, it's it's basically like make sure you have an honest, you know, idea to express to, you know, make sure that you portray nature accurately to be heartfelt and direct and serious and then just make sure you, what you're doing is good. It's All really right. not. Okay. It's not too bad. Um, And the principles were, you know, deliberately non-dogmatic. This was just kind of like a series of loose guidelines um, since the Brotherhood wished to empathize um, the personal responsibility of individual artists to determine their own ideas and methods of depiction. Um, They were also very influenced by romanticism, which is um, the artistic and and literary movement um, that actually... (laughs) I might do an entire episode on this. Um, it was like a precursor to like nationalism. Okay. And you, can, you can, you can like draw a direct line from German romanticism to the Nazis because romanticism and not to say that like Caspar David Friedrich was a not, was like a secret Nazi because that wasn't a thing. But um, romanticism has a lot to do with like going back to, you know, like the ancient traditions of your country. Okay. So like, you know, in love with the land and like the history of the people and like this also this concept of the sublime where there's, you know, a a fear and a a love of God through nature, through Mm -hmm. storms, through, you know, violence. Um, So it's a very like dramatic kind of artistic movement. All right. Um, so they were influenced by that um, in a certain way, and the members thought freedom and responsibility were inseparable. They were also really fascinated by medieval culture, um, believing it to possess a spiritual and creative integrity that had been lost in later eras. Um, and this would continue through the arts and crafts movement. So the arts yes. I talked about the arts mm-hmm. and crafts movement. It was very good. Yeah. Yes, thank you. Um, the arts and crafts movement comes out of the pre-Raphaelites, which came out of Romanticism. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, so this emphasis on medieval culture kind of clashed with the principles of realism mm-hmm. that was part of the pre-Raphaelites. Um, and in its early stages, the pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood believed its two interests were consistent with one another, but in later years, the movement kind of divided and moved into two directions. So it could either be realistic or it could be kind of medieval um, and medieval being a little bit more flattened and kind of posed okay. and um, very, you know, medieval looking. Um, but we'll get to that. So the realists were led specifically by Hunt and Malay, while the medievalists were led by Rossetti and his followers, Edward Byrne Jones and William Morris. So the PRB was greatly influenced by nature and its members used a lot of detail to show the natural world using bright and kind of really sharp focus techniques on a white canvas. When you look at a pre-Raphaelite painting, everything is in focus. There isn't like a depth of field really okay. of like fuzziness in the background to kind of create some, some three dimensionality to the space. Mm-hmm. Everything like every leaf is in perfectly sharp focus. Every petal is painted beautifully and it creates this kind of jewel like quality to the artwork. 
Um, so in attempts to revive this brilliance of color found in Quattrocentro art, Hunt and Millet developed a technique of painting in thin glazes of pigment over a wet white ground in the hope that the colors would retain jewel-like transparency and clarity. So their emphasis on brilliance of color was a reaction to the excessive use of bitumen by early British artists such as What Reynolds did you just call me? Bitumen? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. That's okay. No, that was a good joke. That was a good joke. That was a good joke. <laughs> so earlier British artists used bitumen. You know, it's like Reynolds, a really David, white pigment. Yes. Right. Um, it, and bitumen produced unstable areas of kind of muddy darkness, mm. um, which, the, and it, which was an effect that the pre-Raphaelites kind of really despised. So examples of pre-Raphaelites that you might recognize include Ophelia by John Everett Millay from 1851 right. to two. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's the one of the woman like kind of half in the water, in the water. And flowers all around her and her face is kind of like, looks like she's about to die. Um, Proserpine from 1874 by Dante Gabriel Rossetti, the lady of Shalott from 1888 uh, and La Belle Dame sans Marcy, both by John Williams Waterhouse um, in the mid eighties. Um, also, Flaming June by Sir Frederick Layton. It's that um, image of a woman kind of sleeping in a chair and she's wearing this bright orange dress. I don't know that one. It's very beautiful. I'll, I'll add some images to mm-hmm. this, but um, these all these pictures are characterized by beautiful women, high detail, especially in the flora and then in the landscape, bright colors, somewhat flat perspective later, especially in Rossetti's work. And subject matter based on religious and medieval stories, okay. chivalry, King Arthur, and related poems. Mm-hmm. So the first exhibitions of pre-Raphaelite work occurred in 1849, which was just a year after they started. Um, so both Millet's Isabella and Holman Hunt's Rienzi were exhibited at the Royal Academy, and Rossetti's Girlhood of Mary Virgin was shown at free exhibition on Hyde Park Corner. And they all had agreed that all members of the Brotherhood signed their work with their name, and then the initials PRB. Okay. So that's like the earlier stuff you can really identify a pre-Raphaelite because they they make <laughs> they sure that you, you know it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So between January and April 1850, which, uh, as you might know, is only four months, <laughs> the group published a literary magazine called The Germ. Um, it was edited by William Rossetti, which published poetry by the Rossettis, Woolner and Collinson and essays on art and literature by associates of the Brotherhood, such as a, a very British man who has a very British name of Coventry Patmore. Um, uh, so obviously, as seen by the magazine's run, it didn't vet last very long at all. It ran for four, uh, four runs, four issues, issues. <laughs> which is very typical of a bunch of artists because they probably were like, are you in charge? No. Are you in charge? Ugh, I don't want to do it. Like, you know what? I don't, fine, forget it. I just, I just want to <laughs> paint. Leave me alone. So... In 1850, two years after they started, the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood became the subject of controversy after the exhibition of Millet's painting, which is called Christ in the House of His Parents. It was considered to be blasphemous by many reviewers, notably Charles Dickens, who hated everything. I mean, let's be honest. Um, Dickens considered Millet's Mary to be ugly. He actually said, quote, so hideous in her ugliness that she would stand out from the rest of the company as a monster in the vilest cabaret in France or the lowest gin shop in England. <laughs> I know she's fine. And also she was, she was a real person. Like Malay had used his sister-in-law, Mary Hodgson, Hodg- oh. Mary Hodgkinson as the model for Mary in his painting. So oh. like Charles Dickens is like, your sister-in-law is ugly. a dog, my friend. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's so rude. Um, 
And the Brotherhood's medievalism was attacked as backward looking and its extreme devotion to detail was condemned as ugly and jarring to the eye, which, you know, we laugh at now like, <laughs> oh, no, there's too much beautiful detail in this painting. But it's about taste and like what was considered, you know, beautiful at the time. So again, according to Dickens, Malay made the Holy Family look like alcoholics and slum dwellers, <laughs> adopting contorted and absurd, quote, medieval poses. Um, this piece is probably the most typical and indicative of the realism type of early pre-Raphaelite art. Okay. So a quick, quick description of this painting. So it depicts the young Jesus assisting Joseph in his workshop, and Joseph is making a door, which is laid upon his carpentry work table. And Jesus, who is a, a child, has cut his hand on an exposed nail, symbolizing the stigmata and foreshadowing Je Jesus's crucifixion. So some of the blood has fallen onto his foot to show, like, how he was nailed mm -hmm. in the hands and the feet. Um, and Jesus's grandmother, Anne, removes the nail with a pair of pinchers, and his concerned mother, Mary, offers her cheek for a kiss. Um, Joseph examines Jesus's wounded hand, and a young boy, who would later be known as John the Baptist, brings in water to wash the wound, um, prefiguring his later baptism of mm -hmm. Christ. Um, an assistant of Joseph, who represents Jesus's future apostles, observes these events. So it's kind of a like an everyday sort of scene, but has a lot of symbolism in it. Okay. Um, about like Jesus's life and a his lot of future. action for a still painting. Yeah, there's there are things happening like people are like moving toward each other. There's like you know people are in the middle of a gesture kind of thing. Um, it's interesting. It's kind of beautiful. Um, in the background of the painting, there are various objects that are used to further symbolize the theological significance of the subject. So there's a ladder referring to Jacob's ladder. It leans against the back wall. There's a dove sitting on it, which represents the Holy Spirit. Um, there are other carpentry implements referring to the Holy Trinity. Um, Malay actually likely used Albrecht Durer's print Melancholia One as the source from this imagery, along with Quattro Central works in general. Um, and there's sheep in the, you know, you can see through the door in a mm -hmm. sheepfold um, representing the future Christian flock. Hmm. There's also like curls of wood all over the floor and dust and that kind of thing. And people really hated that too, that there was like detritus all over the place, which is so <laughs> okay. crazy. Critics also objected to the portrayal of Jesus, one complaining that it was, quote, painful to see the youthful savior depicted as a redheaded Jew boy. Oh. Uh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> Yeah. Huh. Lest we forget that Jesus was Jewish. <laughs> um, Dickens described him as a, quote, wry-necked, blubbering, red-headed boy in a bedgown who appears to have received a poke playing in an adjacent gutter. <laughs> What's Other Charles Dickens doing? Doing know, art like, criticism. You not, yeah. not get enough words in the, in the paper that month? Right. Like, uh, go back, go home and write something, Charles. Like, you You're can't cranky. Paint. Get out of Snickers. Here. Right? Damn. It's not our fault that you hate your wife. Anyway, other, <laughs> other critics suggested that the characters displayed sign of rickets and other diseases associated with slum conditions. And because of the controversy, Queen Victoria asked for the painting to be taken to Buckingham Palace so that she could view it in private. Not that I love this line because not that she was like, oh, it's too dangerous. She was like, bring it to my house so I can see it. <laughs> I want to look at it by myself. <laughs> Um, so thanks to Carrie, let's talk about a classic Victorian scandal. Please. Are you ready? So, um, as mentioned before, the Brotherhood found support from the critic and philosopher John Ruskin. 
Um, he loved their work. He praised their devotion to nature and rejection of conventional methods of composition. And they, in, in turn, were influenced by his theories. Um, he also wrote to the Times defending their work and subsequently met each and every one of them. And initially, he favored Malay as his favorite. Um, and actually, Malay traveled to Scotland in the summer of 1853 with Ruskin and Ruskin's wife, Euphemia Chalmers Ruskin, whose maiden name was Gray. And she is now best known as Effie Gray. So okay. we'll refer to her as Effie from here on out. <clears throat> um, him and Effie's relationship was kind of strange. John Ruskin was very close with the Gray family, and he basically watched Effie grow up. He even wrote a book for her when she was 12 and he was 22. Hmm. Um, it's a fantasy story called The King of the Golden River. And there are rumors, as you might imagine, that he <laughs> groomed her, essentially, which is gross. Ugh. Classic. Uh, so in 1847, when she was 18, they got engaged and they were married the following year. Now, something something you should know about our boy Ruskin. He was an only child. Nothing wrong with that. Um, his deep... <laughs> I, I gotta get that in. Um, his deeply religious and hypochondriac mother doted on him. Um, and he still lived with his extraordinarily wealthy parents. Um, he was also kind of rigid and withdrawn. And while F... Effie loved to flirt and she was funny and she was worldly and gorgeous. Um, however, she wasn't really finely educated as you would imagine the wife of a writer, philosopher, critic might be. Um, and Ruskin kind of soon began to resent that we think. Uh -huh. So their ultimately six year marriage was deeply unhappy with Ruskin being reportedly cruel and distrustful of Effie. Um, yet their marriage was never consummated. Now, no one knows exactly why they never consummated their marriage, but subsequent letters from both of them hint as to what may have happened. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> so she wrote, quote, he alleged various reasons, hatred to children, religious motives, a desire to preserve my beauty. And finally, this last year, he told me his true reason, that he had imagined women were quite different to what he saw I was. And the reason he did not make me his wife was because he was disgusted with my person the first evening. <gasps> and he later wrote, Ruskin later wrote, Quote, it may be thought strange that I could abstain from a woman who to most people was so attractive. But though her face was beautiful, her person was not formed to excite passion. On the contrary, there were certain circumstances in her person which completely checked it. <laughs> so these very mysterious writings gave rise to the rumor that Ruskin, who was deeply religious, as mm -hmm. mentioned before, and having only seen the smooth classical bodies of women in art and sculpture, took one look at his nubile young wife's pubic hair and ran screaming for the hills. Oh my God. Another theory is that she may have either just begun or was just ending her menstruation. Uh -huh. And the sight of a little blood made Ruskin never want to have sex with her ever. That's, um, it's a little, f I don't want to say funny, but like that, like for six years and, and like it's, it seems pretty, mm -hmm. I can see that people want to use the the marriage wasn't consummated as an excuse to get a, a marriage annulled. Sure. But six years is a long, it is, is a, a long, long time. time. So, I mean, so he's like, yeah, we're going to do it. We're going to do it all the time now that we're married, babe. And then I, I don't know if it was just like, she was like, ha ha. And I dropped my robe and he was like, oh, and after they had their marriage annulled, he did not marry again. Like okay. he, he was not, he was like done with that whole thing, <laughs> I guess. 
So either way, their relationship never was consummated and also never grew beyond what was essentially just a mild affection. Um, and when Malay went with them to Scotland, the inevitable happened. And there are also some some theories that Ruskin kind of wanted to get rid of her. So he left Effie and John Everett Malay kind of alone a lot. He'd be like, I'm going for a long walk in the hills. You guys have fun. You know, that kind of thing. So Effie and Malay fell in love and Ruskin agreed to an annulment on the grounds of impotence okay. to avoid a divorce and a scandal. Okay. Because annulments were not made public and men were not required to have a physical examination to prove impotence. Okay. Effie, on the other hand, had to be examined by two doctors to prove her virginity was intact. So, you know. <sighs> yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So there was inevitably a public scandal when it became widely known that Ruskin's wife was leaving him for his talented protege, who was also much younger than him. Um, many people voiced the opinion that Effie should have put up with her unhappy marriage, as so many women had to in the Victorian era, rather than make the intimate details of their relationship known to the world. Now, mind you, it's not like she wrote a letter to like the Times right. and was like, my husband couldn't get it up, and that's why we never had sex. Like It just kind of like came out that way. Also, as a symbol of her disapproval, Queen Victoria refused to ever receive Effie at court, even after Malay was created baronet. Oh, so Man. it's like, all right, it's not her fault. I know, but it was no biggie. Uh, Effie and John Malay were married for 41 happy years and had eight children. Okay. So obviously consummation was not an issue. <laughs> so probably the most famous pre-Raphaelite of the medieval style was Dante Gabriel Rossetti. If you see a portrait of a full-lipped, sad-looking, red-headed woman in medieval dress, then you're most likely looking at a Rossetti. The other thing about Rossetti's is that the women tend to have, like, sort of a sneer. He liked to, to make their lips, like, almost like rosebuds, mm -hmm. like an unusual lip shape that doesn't exist in real life. And the farther you get into his work, the more kind of idealized these women are. They tend to have lots of red, curly hair or lots of dark you know, slick hair that's just kind of like tumbling from their shoulders. Um, they're, they look kind of like they're disgusted or like they're grossed out by something because their, <laughs> their mouths are shaped in such like an interesting way. Um, he was an English poet, illustrator, painter, and translator. And um, he was a member of the Italian noble Rossetti family. So the Rossetti family had been like a noble family for, you know, hundreds of years. Um, his art was characterized by its sensuality and medieval revivalism. And he also frequently wrote sonnets to accompany his pictures, spanning from The Girlhood of Mary Virgin from 1849 and Astarte Syriaca from 1877, while also creating art to illustrate poems such as Goblin Market by the celebrated poet Christina Rossetti, who was his sister. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Christina was an accomplished pre-Raphaelite in her own right, although in poetry specifically rather than, you know, painting and sculpture. Um, she also wrote the words of two Christmas carols well-known in Britain. She wrote the words for In the Bleak Midwinter and Love Came Down at Christmas. And arguably her most famous poem, Goblin Market, had been written a lot about, mostly because it's argued that it's pretty sapphic and not just a little sexual for a kid's poem. Mm. But I digress. So, back to Gabriel. Dante Gabriel. Um, in 1850, he met Elizabeth Siddle, she was an important model for the pre-Raphaelite painters. She modeled for a bunch of them, but she, over the next like 10 years, he, she became his muse, his pupil, and his absolute passion. Um, they were married in 1860, and she was his favorite model during his lifetime. Although, as I mentioned before, she sat for other PRB artists. 
Um, she was the model for Malay's Ophelia. And while she was modeling for that, she floated in a bathtub full of water to portray the drowning Ophelia. And he painted daily through the winter, putting oil lamps under the tub to warm the water. Oh. But, but on one occasion, the lamps went out and the water got so cold. Um, but Malay didn't notice because he was really working hard on his painting. Uh-huh. And Siddle didn't say anything. So after this, she became ill with a severe cold or pneumonia. They don't know which. And her father held Malay responsible. And under the threat of legal action, he paid her doctor's bills. Oh, boy. <laughs> so Elizabeth Siddle, who he uh, Dante called uh, Lizzie, um, she had a career as an artist and a poet from 1852 to 1861. She produced over 100 works during that time. Oh, great. Um, she, uh, wrote like dark themed poetry about lost love or the impossibility of true love. And both Rossetti and Ford Maddox Brown supported and admired her work. Um, it was thought that she suffered from tuberculosis, but some historians believe an intestinal disorder was probably more likely. Um, Albert Hubbard wrote that, uh, quote, she suffered much from neuralgia and the laudanum taken to relieve the pain had grown into a necessity. Oof. Um, others had suggested that she may have been anorexic, while others attributed her poor health to a laudanum addiction or a combination of ailments. And at the time of her wedding, she was so frail and ill that she had to be carried to the church, oh despite gosh. it being a five-minute walk from where she was staying. Yeah. She became severely depressed, and her long illness gave her access to laudanum, which she became addicted to. And then in 1861, when she was pregnant, it ended with the birth of a stillborn daughter, and it left her with postpartum depression. Mm. Um, she became pregnant for a second time in late 1861, uh, but unfortunately she overdosed on laudanum, laudanum in February of 1862. Oh. Uh, the coroner ruled her death as accidental. However, there are suggestions that Rossetti found a suicide note hmm. uh, with the words, please look after Harry. And Harry was her invalid brother who may have had a slight intellectual disability. Um, this was supposedly pinned on the breast of her nightshirt. Hmm. And Consumed with grief and guilt, Rossetti allegedly went to see Ford Maddox Brown, who was supposed to have instructed him to burn the note mm. because suicide was illegal and considered immoral and it would have brought scandal on the family and it would have barred right. Lizzie from a Christian burial. Um, Rossetti was so consumed with grief that he had he buried his unpublished poems with her when she was interred in 1862. Oh, wow. In seven years later, he changed his mind. Uh <laughs> He was like, I shouldn't have done that. So he dug her up and he grabbed a book. Oh my God. Um, and he subsequently pump- published it in 1870 under the title Poems. Um, they were, as noted in his biography, disinfected beforehand. So good to know. So after the death of his wife, he leased a Tudor house at 16 Chain Walk in Chelsea, where he lived for 20 years surrounded by extravagant furnishings and a parade of exotic birds and animals. Um, He was fascinated with wombats. Who isn't? They're adorable. Uh, He asked friends to meet him at the, quote, wombats lair at the London Zoo in Regent's Park and spent hours there looking at the wombats. Oh, my gosh. Um, In 1869, he acquired the first of two pet wombats, which he named Top. I guess they were both named Top. Uh, (laughs) Top and Top. Um, the, The wombats were brought to the dinner table and they were allowed to sleep in a large centerpiece in the center of the table during meals. Oh, my gosh. Um, his fascination with exotic animals continued throughout his life, culminating in the purchase of a llama and a toucan, which he dressed in a little cowboy hat and he trained to ride the llama around the dining table for his amusement. 
Um, so the savage reaction of critics to Rossetti's first collection of poetry contributed to a mental breakdown in June of 1872, mm. which subsequently kicked off his addiction to chloral. Um, on, on Easter Sunday, 1882, he died at the country house of a friend where he had gone in a vain attempt to recover his health, which had been destroyed by chloral as his wife's had been destroyed by laudanum. Um, he died of Bright's disease, a disease of the kidneys from which he had been suffering for some time. So, aside from all that hot gossip, um, what future elements were inspired by the Pre-Raphaelites? So, one follower who, de who developed his own distinct style was Aubrey Beardsley, who was preeminently influenced by Edward Byrne Jones. Aubrey Beardsley did these very strange, kind of very dark, kind of 20s-esque, usually like late teens, early 20s drawings a very sharp faced women. There were a lot of like kind of vaguely erotic drawings as well. Aubrey Beardsley drawings are very distinctive. They're usually just kind of like black and white and have like a single line drawing quality to them. Hmm. Um, they're very strange it's for something that was like, you know, early 20th century, you would not think something so like kind of modern surrealist would be during this time period. Um, Rossetti's work influenced his friend, William Morris, in whose firm Morris, Marshall, Faulkner, and co. He became a partner and who's, and with whose wife, Jane, he may have had an affair. Who yeah. knows? Um, Ford Maddox Brown and Edward Byrne Jones also became partners in the firm. And through Morris's company, the ideals of the pre-Raphaelite brotherhood influenced many interior designers and architects, right. arousing interest in medieval designs and other crafts leading to the arts and crafts movement headed by William Morris. So if you know anything about Morris, we see a lot of like Morris prints in um, wallpaper yeah, and strawberry drapery. thief, right? Yeah. Strawberry thief mm -hmm. is a big one. That's a very like British arts and crafts style of like design. And it's still popular today. I mean, I think just a couple of years ago, H and M did a William Morris yeah. line mm -hmm. and it sold out in like 30 seconds. Yep. It was crazy. Um, Holman Hunt was involved with the movement to reform designs for the Della Robbia Pottery Company. So Della Robbia Pottery is also kind of influenced by the Pre-Raphaelites and, and arts and crafts in general. Uh, the Birmingham Museum and Art Gallery has a world-renowned collection of works by Byrne Jones and the Pre-Raphaelites that some claim strongly influenced the young J.R.R. Tolkien, oh. who wrote The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, with influences taken from the same mythological scenes portrayed by the Pre-Raphaelites. Um, Tolkien considered his own group of school friends and artistic associates as a group in the vein of the pre-Raphaelites. So again, like this continued on and on and on. It just kind of keeps morphing and turning into other things. Um, unfortunately, in the 20th century, artistic ideals changed. Art moved away from representing reality, especially after the First World War. Pre-Raphaelite art was devalued for its literary qualities and was scorned by critics as sentimental and concocted artistic bric-a-brac. <laughs> Um, of course, every, everything old is new again. So in the 60s, there was a major revival of pre-Raphaelitism. In the 60s, there was also a huge revival of Tolkien sure. uh, mm -hmm. write, writings and, and books. Um, exhibitions and catalogs of works culminating in a 1984 exhibition in London's Tate Gallery reestablished a canon of pre-Raphaelite work. And our good buddy, Andrew Lloyd Webber, Andy L. Dubbs, is also an avid collector of pre-Raphaelite works and a selection of 300 items from his collection were shown at an exhibition at the Royal Academy in London in 2003. <laughs> like one of his 18 sitting rooms. Yeah, yeah full of pre-Raphaelite yeah. stuff. Jeez. So 
So that is my like brief overview of the pre-Raphaelites and a little bit of like fun hot gossip about artists because they're so weird. Interesting. I think especially because the name doesn't necessarily make you think of the 19th century. No, it's it. I, I mean, they knew what they were talking about. Like, oh, yeah, we're pre-Raphaelite. But like <laughs> it doesn't it's not indicative of the style or, you know, like they're their mm-hmm. you know philosophy or anything so and you know you wouldn't know it to look at it i i mean relatedly when was Raphael working when when was he working uh Raphael, fifth the painter 16th century maybe uh so he so it's um early 16th century okay so he was uh kind of a baroque artist okay. so high renaissance so a lot of like um, a lot of gesture and like a lot of like soft kind of um, like kind of bright pastels mm-hmm. was kind of his color palette and that kind of thing. Uh, Raphael also really loved a, a voluptuous woman. All Raphael right. loved a loved a cur- curvy gale and a guy with a lot of with really broad shoulders and a lot of abs that don't exist in real life. <laughs> um, yeah, Raphael's men tend to be very very hugely square in like a non-realistic way. Um, and the pre-Raphaelites were like snore. So they went with stuff <laughs> earlier than that. Well, so, awesome. Thank you, Lauren. You're welcome. So speaking of the romantics, I decided that my quiz today is going to be about the 80s new romantics and acts associated with the new romantics. Oh, boy. <laughs> Question number one. One of the most famous of the 80s new romantics was Boy George, who still is considered one of the most influential members of the UK LGBTQ plus community. He shot to stardom with the song Karma Chameleon and Do You Really Want to Hurt Me alongside his band, whose name was what? Question number two. This similarly glam British singer also leaned into the new dandy look often wearing a hussar jacket, pirate shirt, and leather gloves, along with copious amounts of makeup. His solo single, Goody Two Shoes, reached number one in the UK and Australia in 1982 and became his first top 20 hit in the United States. Who is this eusocial insect of the family Formicidae? Question number three. This fashion designer is arguably the creator of the new romantic look, thanks to her unveiling of her pirate collection in 1981. Known for her flaming red hair and her incorporation of punk looks into her collections, she's probably the most famous to normies as the designer of Carrie Bradshaw's iconic wedding gown in Sex and the City. Who is this fashion designer? Question number four. A band that emerged from the new romantic movement was Bow Wow Wow. Its music was characterized by a danceable new wave sound that drew on an African Burundi beat, as well as the subversive, suggestive, and sometimes exuberant lyrics sung and chanted by their teenage lead vocalist, Annabelle Wynn, who was 13 at the time of their forming. Their most famous single in the U.S. was This Earworm, whose chorus might be chanted by a small child. What is the name of this song? Question number five. True or false? The Eurythmics was the name of Annie Lennox's solo project before she started performing under her own name. Question number six. This iconic new wave 80s band also grew out of the new romantics, but eschewed the glam pirate look for a vaguely Miami Vice sharp suit kind of thing. 
You know most of their singles, like Girls on Film, Rio, Hungry Like the Wolf, and my personal favorite, The Reflex. Oh, An Ordinary World. That's a good one, too. Who is this repetitive band? Question number seven. Another slick new wave band was Spandau Ballet, so named because a friend saw a phrase written on a wall in a weekend trip to Berlin, quote, Rudolf Hess, all alone, dancing the Spandau Ballet. Their most popular song in the U.S. was this romantic ballad off the album of the same name, whose classic opening is <laughs> Question number eight. This synth-pop duo rose to prominence with their 1981 cover of Tainted Love, which was originally recorded by Gloria Jones in 1964. The extended dance version is also weirdly a medley, transitioning to a cover of the Supremes' Where Did Our Love Go halfway through the song. What is the name of this outfit, which might remind you of biology class, or maybe someplace you would be put in a mental institution? Question number nine. The decline of the New Romantics and their ilk can be traced to both Live Aid and this internationally known song project that had good intentions, but has since been mocked mercilessly. Featuring a veritable who's who of 80 singers and musicians, the song was the brainchild of songwriter Bob Geldof, who hasn't really lived this holiday single down. What was the name of this giant song? And finally, question number 10. The single New Romantics is off Taylor Swift's fifth studio album from 2014 entitled What? We'll give you a minute to think about it and we'll be back with your answers. On either side of the night, long fields of barley the clothes of world meet the sky Through the field the road run by To many towered Camelot And up and down the people go Gazing where the lilies blow Round an island there below The island White and aspens quiver, little breezes dusk and shiver through the wave that runs forever by the island in the I figured I'd throw you a bone at the end. Thank there, you. Just in case. Just in case. Just in case. There. This is, there's a reason why I am not the music person. I was trying um, to like give you enough hints. in yeah. our trivia team, but <laughs> we will see what happens. I, I will, I will, I have done my best. I will do my best. Okay, here we go. Question number one. One of the most famous of the 80s new romantics was Boy George, who still is considered one of the most influential members of the UK LGBTQ plus community. He shot to start him with the songs Karma Chameleon and Do You Really Want to Hurt Me alongside his band, whose name was what? Uh, that's Culture Club. It is Culture Club. Um, originally, they were named Sex Gang Children, but they settled on the name Culture Club, referring to the various ethnic backgrounds of the members. After they broke up in 86, he started an ASIC rock band called Jesus Loves You. So there's that. Great. Question number two. This similarly glam British singer also leaned into the new dandy look, often wearing a Husser jacket, pirate shirt, and leather gloves. His solo single, Goody Two Shoes, reached number one in the UK and Australia in 1982 and became his first top 20 hit in the United States. 
Who is this eusocial insect of the family Formicidae? This is not a thing I know. Okay. So I'm going off of insect family Formicidae, which should lead me to ant. But okay. I don't know anything else around that. Okay, his name was Adam Ant. So uh, I'll give you that. Oh. Adam Ant. Adam Ant was a real person. He was a real person. Um, he's he's 67. He still looks good. Um, although he's leaning more towards the like Jack Sparrow look as opposed to the new romantics these days. I wonder um, if I know him from like hosting something. It's definitely possible. He's still like around on okay. like British TV. He still tours. Um, his band before he went solo was called Adam and the Ants. Okay. So he was Adam Ant and Adam and the Ants. Yeah. Yeah. I did not know this song at all. Oh, Goody Two Shoes? No. Good. It's terrible. Oh, good. It's good. so like it's it good gets, you don't know what that is. <laughs> yeah, it's very bad. Like it got stuck in my head and I had to like, you know, open up a new window and like play something else because it was making me crazy. All right. Question number three. This fashion designer is arguably the creator of the new romantic look thanks to her unveiling of her pirate collection in 1981. Known for her flaming red hair and her incorporation of punk looks into her collections. She's probably most famous to normies as the designer of Carrie Bradshaw's iconic wedding gown in Sex and the City. Who is this fashion designer? Uh, this question went a lot of places for me. <laughs> I zigged and I zagged. Yeah. Um, and then you made me think about the Seinfeld episode with the pirate. <laughs> yes, the puffy I shirt. I don't want to be a pirate. Um, if I had to pick a red-haired fashion designer associated mm -hmm. with Sex of the City, I would say Patricia Field. Oh, that is a very good guess. But I'm looking for Vivian Westwood. Oh. Mm -hmm. Did she... Something, something, Sex Pistols. She, she was married to the guy, one of the guys in Sex Pistols. And that's how she kind of got her start because she was Great. designing like punk clothes. Great. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, she is 81 and she is still kicking. Um, in 1992, she was awarded an OBE, which she actually collected from Queen Elizabeth II at Buckingham Palace. She collected Palace. it. <laughs> she was like, I will have this now, please. Um, at the ceremony, she wore nothing but sheer tights with a reinforced bikini top under her skirt. This, unfortunately, was later captured by a photographer in the courtyard of Buckingham Palace, and Westwood later said, I wish to show off my outfit by twirling the skirt. It did not occur to me that, as the photographers were practically on their knees, the result would be more glamorous than I expected. And you added, have to wear knickers to see the you queen. You have to wear knickers to see the queen. It's a rule. But she did say, I have heard that the picture amused the queen. <laughs> so whether that's true or not, that's cute. Okay, question number four. A band that emerged from the new romantic movement was Bow Wow Wow. Its music was characterized by a danceable new wave sound that drew on an African Burundi beat, as well as the subversive, suggestive, and sometimes exuberant lyrics sung and chanted by their teenage lead vocalist, Annabelle Wynn, who was 13 at the time of their forming. Their most famous single in the U.S. was This Earworm, whose chorus might be chanted by a small child. What is the name of this song? I also have no idea, so I'm going to say, I want a cake. Oh, you're so close. It's I want candy. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> so I want candy was was a later single, but their the album cover of their debut album, which was entitled. You ready? Uh-huh. Sea Jungle, Sea Jungle, go join your gang. Yeah. City all over. Go ape crazy. That's the name That's of the album. Too long. Too yes. long, I would argue. Um, 
Yes, but it depicted the band recreating Edouard Manet's uh, Les Déjeuners de Sur l'Herbe with a then 14-year-old Lynn posing nude. That's not great. It's not great. Photographed by Andy Earle, the cover caused outrage that led to an investigation by Scotland Yard instigated by Lewin's mother. Um, undeterred, the band used the same photo on the cover of their follow-up EP, The Last of the Mohicans, and the sleeve of the Go Wild and Country single. The picture is now part of the National Portrait Gallery collection, which, ick. Ick. Ick, I say. No, I say. All right, question number five. True or false, the Eurythmics was the name of Annie Lennox's solo project before she started performing under her own name. I will flip a coin and say true. It is false. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) They were a duo. The other member was Dave Stewart. Um, They were originally in a band called The Tourists. They were also in a relationship with each other while they were in The Tourists. But after the band and they broke up, they decided to reform as the Eurythmics and continued a very successful professional relationship. All right. It's very mature of them. Um, Question number six. This iconic new wave 80s band also grew out of the new romantics, but eschewed the glam pirate look for a vaguely Miami Vice sharp suit kind of thing. You know, most of their singles like Girls on Film, Rio and Hungry Like the Wolf and my personal favorite, The Reflex. Who is this repetitive band? Finally confident in an answer that this is Duran (laughs) Duran, who's neither neither a Duran nor a Duran. (laughs) Uh, Their name comes from Dr. Durand Durand, who was Milo O'Shea's character from the sci-fi film Barbarella. Yes. Um, The glam album cover of Rio featuring a high contrast image of a super 80s lady was created by the the artist Patrick Nagel. Um, Nagel became famous for his graphic illustration style. Yep. Um, He went on to illustrate album covers, advertisements, and for Playboy magazine before his untimely death at 38 in 1984. He was, this is the craziest thing. So he was doing like an aerobic-a-thon for like to raise money for the National Heart Association or the, the British Heart Association. Yeah. And he was 15 minutes in before he dropped dead of a heart attack, raising money for the Heart Association. That's awful. And his autopsy, they discovered that he had an undiagnosed genetic heart condition that he did not know about or anyone knew about. So it's just like such a dramatic way to go. It's also but, a warning tale that we should not be participating in aerobic athons. No. I mean, there's a reason why aerobics died, you know? Jeez. All right. Question number seven. Another slick new wave band was Spandau Ballet. So named because a friend saw a phrase written on a wall on a weekend trip to Berlin, quote, Rudolf Hess all alone dancing the Spandau Ballet. Their most popular song in the U.S. was this romantic ballad off the album of the same name, whose classic opening is, and I actually wrote this out, I've been scrunching up my face, like just trying to will this answer to come out of my brain. Okay. Because I can... Because I can then sing you the rest of that part. Okay, yeah, that's 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 good. This love is true, but okay. that's not the title you, of the song. Uh, it's you. Ha- it? The title is in. The, the title is, is in it, that. Is it true? Is it called true? It, it is called true. It is called true. You are correct. Um, in 2011, it received a BMI award as one of the most played songs in U.S. history with four million airplays. It has been characterized as a karaoke staple. I also feel like I had a, um, you know, you see you see things on, you know, Twitter that people sure. clip from Reddit and stuff. And it was like somebody said that their, um, 
their roommate got broken up with and just played that song on repeat for like a oh, week and a half straight. That's a tort. That's torturous. That's, <laughs> that's awful. You would just have to leave. You would have to no, leave. You, yeah. I'd burn the house down. Yeah. yeah forget it. Um, in 2015, the song was voted by the British public as the nation's 10th favorite 1980s number one in a poll for ITV, just showing that the British public don't know what's good. On the <laughs> other hand, wow, Guardi <laughs> we love you, Britain. Um, on the other hand, Guardian journalist Luke Williams referred to the song as, quote, the biggest load of musical tosh ever, and his colleague Michael Hand described it as, quote, dreadful wine bar soul. <laughs> so it's a polarizing song for sure. Yes. All right, question number eight. This synth-pop duo raised, rose to prominence with their 1981 cover of Tainted Love, which was originally recorded by Gloria Jones in 1964. Um, what is the name of this outfit which might remind you of biology class or maybe someplace you would be put in a mental institution? This is Soft Cell. Very good. Soft Cell, yes. The band are primarily known for their 1981 hit version of Tainted Love and their platinum-selling debut album entitled Nonstop Erotic Cabaret. Look, you got to know your 80s one-hit wonders. Exactly. That much I know is true. Absolutely. (laughs) Very good. Yes, absolutely. Okay, question number nine. The decline of the new romantics and their ilk can be traced to both Live Aid and this internationally known song project that had good intentions but has since been mocked mercilessly. Featuring a veritable who's who of 80s singers and musicians, the song was the brainchild of songwriter Bob Geldof, who hasn't really lived this holiday single down. What is the name of this giant song? It's Do They Know It's Christmas? It's such a stupid song, I never understood either. no. It became the fastest selling single in UK chart history, selling a million copies in the first week and passing 3 million sales on the last day of 1984. It held this title until 1997 when it was overtaken by Elton John's Candle in the Wind, 1997. Released in tribute to Princess Diana. We couldn't escape that song either. Um, Geldof once told Australia's Daily Telegraph in 2010, quote, I am responsible for two of the worst songs in history. The other one is We Are the World. And I had forgotten he wrote that song, too. This poor man. He's rich. I don't care. Yeah. All right. And finally, question number 10. The single New Romantics is off Taylor Swift's fifth studio album from 2014, entitled What? All right. So first of all, thank you for giving me a Taylor Swift question. You're Second welcome. of all, I'm going to tell you this is not off of the standard album. This is off the deluxe album. So not oh, a lot sure. of people knew this song. But this yeah, is off true. of 1989. It is off of 1989. Other singles off this album, Deluxe or Not, included Shake It Off, Blank Space, and of course, Welcome Bad Blood. to New York. Welcome to New York, which is the which is the opening <laughs> title song for our upcoming for one of our upcoming sitcoms. CBS. <laughs> CBS. <laughs> Get at us, CBS. We got a great, we we have, have some great ideas. We have for so you. many ideas for shows. Oh, please hit us up. Actually, you know what? We'll cold call you. <laughs> we'll we got do great it. ideas. We'll do it. Be like, we have a mildly successful podcast. We can do whatever <laughs> we want. Um, so yeah, so that was my Terrific. Chris Romantic. Yeah. Fantastic, thanks. Lauren. Thank you so it much. Re- you're welcome. It really got me back into like, I was like, ooh, I remember this song. Ooh, remember this song? Oh man, I should listen to more Duran Duran. Um, so yeah, Duran Duran's great. So anyway, uh, yeah, thanks. And thanks everybody for listening. Thanks for sticking with us. And uh we will catch you next time. Bye. Bye.